So, I live and work here in New York City, uh, making the majority of my living as a food photographer. In fact, that's how I got involved with marketing for restaurants, because I was shooting all over the city. And as social media uh, rose to prominence, I realized uh, how crucial it was that restaurants have high-quality content on a consistent basis. Uh, I still think it's crucial, and so today we're going to talk all about food photography. And it's not so that you can build a new career as a food photographer. It's number one, so that you can start capturing some of your own content if you you need to and number two probably more importantly so you can start to understand some of the vocabulary so that you can confidently communicate with a food photographer when you do hire one so please stick around if you've ever wanted to learn how to capture great images of your food don't go anywhere there's an old saying that goes something like this you'll only find three kinds of people in the world those who see those who can see when shown and those who will never see this is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for everyone in the middle. Hey everyone, welcome back. I want to thank you again for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly marketing podcast dedicated entirely to chefs and restaurant owners. So each week I choose a different topic, we explore that topic, we pick it apart, hopefully by the end we come across some useful insights, and then we always finish up with an assignment. I leave you with a short, actionable task, something you can do right away to start implementing some of the concepts we talk about here on the show, because I believe information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. So today's episode is all about photography, but more than that, I want to talk specifically about food photography. So as I said at the top of the show, I live and work here in New York City as a marketing strategist for restaurants, but I got my start in marketing and really social media through my work as a food photographer. So that's how I make my living, but you don't have to be a professional to get good shots. And more importantly, I don't think you should have to feel overwhelmed when you do hire a professional to come in and capture images of your food. This episode is about giving you the confidence to engage with those photographers to better understand what they're trying to do and how to capture great photos. So today's episode is going to be uh, broken up into three main sections. In the first part of the episode, we're going to talk about the basic principles of good photography. I want you to understand how a camera works, uh, what exposure is, what we mean by uh, focus and depth of field and white balance. I want you to understand the nuts and bolts of good photography. The second part of the episode is going to be a food photography setup. I'm going to walk you through specifically my setup and how I capture uh, my images. And then the third part of the episode, I'm going to share with you my gear guide, specifically the equipment that I use and recommend uh, for food photography. Uh, very important for this week's episode, I've actually put together a guidebook because this stuff is, uh, is sometimes difficult to visualize. Uh, I know it can also be really overwhelming. Uh, so the point of the guidebook is just to give you a reference. It's, it's meant to, to walk you through all of the information we're about to talk about here on the episode. So you can go now and download it uh, and you can follow along as we uh, go through the episode or you can listen to the episode and go download it later. Uh, either way, uh, whatever is easiest for you, Whatever, uh, whatever's going to be the most helpful for you. You can download that guidebook by visiting chipclose.com slash photo guide. That's C-H-I-P-K-L-O-S-E dot com slash photo guide. 
since we have so much, I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to dance around it anymore. Let's dive right in. So the first section uh, of the episode today is all about the basic principles of photography. To start, know that light is the most important piece of the puzzle. The camera captures light, and because of that, photographers are always trying to manage the light. We need to expose the film properly, or these days, uh, we're talking about not film, but we're talking about the digital sensor. So that means we have to let in the correct amount of light. Let in too much, and we'll get an overexposed image that's way too bright. If we don't let in enough light, it's going to be underexposed or way too dark. So, in order to understand exposure, let's talk about the basic structure of the camera itself. So, when we're talking about manual cameras, we're really talking about either an SLR camera or a DSLR, that stands for Digital Single Lens Reflex, or a mirrorless camera. So, in an SLR camera, there's a little mirror that lets you look through the viewfinder, and then you can see through the lens. You see exactly what the lens sees. When you snap a photo, the mirror flips up out of the way to allow the light to come in through the lens and expose the sensor along the back of the camera. A mirrorless camera is built just a little bit differently. True to its name, there's no mirror, so you're not actually looking through the lens. What you're doing is you're seeing a digital image when you look in the viewfinder. Now, the benefit of the uh, mirrorless cameras is that they're typically uh, lighter and more compact, but for all intents and purposes, they achieve the same thing, either a DSLR camera or a mirrorless. These cameras are going to give you the greatest amount of control over the final image, which is what we're interested in. Uh, certainly much more freedom uh, than you'd get with a regular point-and-click camera or even the camera that's on your smartphone. So. There are three ways that we can manage light, and uh, to begin to talk about that, we need to first understand exposure. So the three pieces of exposure, the three pieces we're going to discuss are aperture, shutter speed, and ISO. So first, we can adjust the aperture. So, okay, what's an aperture? Simply put, aperture is the hole within your lens through which light travels into the camera body. So you can control how big or small that hole is, meaning however big the hole is, that's how much light gets let in. So you'll see uh, they're called f-stops. You'll see f-1.8 or f-4 or f-9. The smaller numbers like 1.8 are wider, meaning it lets in more light. The larger numbers like f-16 or f-22 are much more narrow, and so they let in less light. So we uh, can adjust the aperture uh, to control how much light comes into the camera body. We can also adjust the shutter speed, meaning how long the little window is open. So the aperture is where you adjust how much light gets let in, and the shutter determines for how long. The last piece to the exposure triangle is ISO, or light sensitivity. So the number you'll typically see is like 100, or 400, or 800, and now you'll see them go all the way up to as high as 12,800 or 25,600 and sometimes even higher. In the old days, you used to buy film that was a specific number and you bought it based on where you were going to be shooting. So the less sensitive film are lower numbers and you'd use that to shoot in the day. Uh, more sensitive uh, you'd use to shoot indoors or at night. So now it's just a setting on the camera. You're adjusting the sensitivity of the sensor. Again, the lower numbers are lower sensitivity. So 100 I would use for daytime shoots since there's lots of natural light you can go with a lower number ISO. 800 might be for an indoor shot and you might go even higher if you're shooting let's say in a dark theater or a dark restaurant or outside at night. The thing about ISO is that more sensitivity 
results in diminished quality, which often means that when you're shooting at high ISOs, the final images will have a little graininess to them. The higher you go, the more noise you'll see in those finished photographs. So it's not the end of the world, but it's something to be aware of for sure. That's often why you'll see professional photographers shooting with artificial lighting. If we can control the light, uh, it allows us to shoot at very low ISOs, which will give us high quality images. So then to get the proper exposure, you need to balance the aperture, the shutter speed, and the ISO. And it's going to be helpful if you think of it like a triangle. Now, when we talk about shutter speed, a couple of things to mention at this point. When I'm holding the camera in my hand, the slowest I'm going to keep my shutter is at about 1 1 60th of a second. Anything slower than that, and I'm often going to see a little blurriness from camera shake, I can only hold the camera so still. Now, some people feel comfortable holding the camera even slower than that, uh, 1 25th or even lower, but not for me. Any slower, and I'm pretty much always going to use a tripod. Also, when we're talking about shutter speed, we have to consider what we're shooting. For example, if we're photographing a dog running through the park, uh, do you want to show motion or do you want to freeze the action? If you want to freeze the dog, meaning no blur, you're going to have to shoot with very fast shutter speeds, like 1 500th of a second or even higher, maybe 1 1,000th of a second. But maybe on the other hand, you want a little blur, maybe 1 160th of a second or 1 1 25th or even slower is what's needed to get that effect. But remember what I said a minute ago, anything slower than 1 1 60th, and it's going to be hard to manage the natural camera shake uh, that happens when you handhold a camera. So you may want to consider a tripod. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, let's think about food photography. Perhaps you want to capture a drink being mixed or a sauce being poured or cheese being grated over a dish. And this is a consideration. Do you want the cheese to be frozen as if in midair? Or do you want some, uh, some blurriness from the, the chef's hand running over the cheese grater? It's going to give you two different feels. Uh, and depending what you're going for, you're going to make your decisions based on that. Understanding exposure is the first step towards capturing great images. And it's absolutely crucial when you're going to manual mode, understanding the relationship between aperture, shutter speed, and ISO. Now, when we're talking about the basic principles of photography, the next area we have to talk about is focus. So aside from exposing the image properly, being able to focus properly is crucial. So these days, cameras will offer all kinds of great features like autofocus, uh, and they're pretty reliable. But at the end of the day, you want to make sure to check every single image after you shoot. Zoom in on the viewfinder and make sure that focus is absolutely tack sharp. Especially when it comes to food photography, it's important that we get things perfect. Now, when it comes to focus, I always like to give five quick tips. So, number one, go low with the ISO. When possible, always shoot at 100. That little bit of graininess is going to distort the picture and it's going to look like it's out of focus. The lower you go with the ISO, the sharper you're going to be able to get the focus. Number two, when in doubt, go with faster shutter speeds. I'm talking 1 200th of a second or faster, or if you have to, use a tripod. Tip number three, make sure to keep your lens clean. Number four, when in doubt, switch off the autofocus and just do it manually. And finally, number five, use a good lens, which we're going to get to in a few minutes. The other thing worth mentioning at this point uh, when we talk about focus is depth of field. 
So the wider the aperture, the more narrow the depth of field, meaning that if you're shooting a portrait of someone's face with the aperture at, let's say, 1.8, the background is going to be blurred out. So if you want more of your image in focus, you'll need a smaller aperture. So if you're shooting a landscape, let's say, or a real estate photo where you want the house in focus, but you also want the lawn in focus in the foreground and then the mountains in the distance, you're going to need a very narrow aperture, something like f22. And of course, that's going to affect the other settings on your camera because the aperture is so narrow, you're letting in such little light that you're going to need to compensate by having a slower shutter speed or maybe boosting the ISO. Now, if you're taking a headshot, you just want the person's face in focus and everything else is going to be blurred out. When it comes to, let's say, that real estate photo, you want everything in focus. But when it comes to food, it's a little trickier and I think you're going to want something right in the middle. So keep that in mind when we talk about food photography, you want just enough of the image to be in focus so that you understand what you're looking at. We're going to go through all of that when we go through my camera settings in a minute. I'm going to walk you through my entire setup, so sit tight. The last thing I want to talk about, the last thing we have to talk about when talking about the basic principles of good photography uh, is white balance. Now, all light has a temperature. If you didn't know it before, you do now. We measure that temperature based on the Kelvin scale. So you may remember that back from high school. Think of it as a scale from 1,000 to 10,000. Natural sunlight being a bluer light all the way at the top around 10,000, and then candles being a more red light being all the way at the bottom around 1,000. In food photography, we always want to find a bluer light. So a clear blue sky, like I was saying, it's about 10,000 degrees Kelvin, the very top of the range. A cloudy sky might be something like 6,000 degrees Kelvin. The midday sun is right around 5,500 degrees Kelvin. That's the same as a typical flash. A tungsten light bulb, so think of an incandescent light, is right around 3,000 degrees Kelvin. And a candle flame, like I said, is about 1,000 degrees Kelvin way at the bottom. So why is this important? It is vitally important to understand because if you're shooting in your restaurant, the light will affect the final image. For example, most restaurants use a warmer light, somewhere around three to 4,000 degrees Kelvin because it's soothing for the diner. It's more romantic, more comfortable. Uh, now remember, it's also usually pretty dim in a restaurant, so certainly dimmer than, say, in a corporate office or in a classroom or outside in the bright sunshine. So again, you have to keep that in mind. Natural sunlight, a bluer light, something closer to six to 7,000 degrees Kelvin is always going to be preferable when it comes to food photography. The colors are going to pop and the details will be more crisp. So where you take your pictures matters a great deal, which we're gonna get into now when we start going through the setup. But those are the basics. Understanding exposure, the relationship between aperture, shutter speed, and ISO, understanding focus and depth of field, and, and at least having a, a grasp of what we mean by white balance and the temperature of light. Those are the basic principles of photography. We can obviously go deeper, but, but that's, that's where you need to start. If you can start understanding those terms, uh, those ideas, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be in good shape. Now, the second section here of this episode, I want to talk all about how to set up for a basic food photography shoot. Now, to shoot food, all you need is a camera and a light source. And if you're lucky enough to live here on planet Earth, we have a terrific light source available to us. It's called the sun, albeit it's not available 24 hours a day. And yeah, due to the unpredictability of weather, you can't always count on it. But still, it's up there and it's free. So especially if you're just starting out, 
I would start there. Use sunlight, use direct sunlight while you perfect your skills. As for a camera, there are a ton of great options out there. If you're looking at a DSLR camera, you're probably looking at either Canon or Nikon. Those are the two big companies and they both make terrific products. It's just a matter of which you prefer. If you're just getting started, I would recommend going down to a camera shop to play around with some of the display items, uh, see what you like. You wanna take your time with the decision because typically you're gonna pick one of those companies and you're gonna stick with it for your entire career. Why is that? Well, as you get better and better, you're gonna start upgrading your gear. You're gonna get lenses and flashes and other lighting units for your camera, and those typically are not interchangeable. So Canon lenses fit Canon cameras. Nikon lenses fit Nikon cameras, and so on. That being said, I shoot Nikon. I love the products, and I've been able to grow with the company. Uh, as I've gotten better and my needs have changed, I've found I can uh, easily upgrade my equipment. So if you want my recommendation, that would be it. Go Nikon. Uh, if you're shooting mirrorless, there are a bunch of companies out there. Nikon and Canon both have their own lines of mirrorless products, but then you've also got Sony and Panasonic and, and on and on and on. I'm less familiar with mirrorless cameras, but again, if you want to go that route, I, the same advice applies. I would recommend you go down and try out the cameras, see what you like, and make sure you're going to be able to grow with the company, meaning check out what kind of lenses they have available. So I think that's the perfect segue to start talking about lenses. Let's say you've got the sun as your light source and you've got your camera. The next thing we'll need to discuss is a lens. And for food photography, I think it's crucial to get yourself a good macro lens. The macro lens is gonna allow you to get very close to your subject matter, in this case, the food, and it's gonna bring out all kinds of incredible detail, which is also crucial when it comes to shooting food. If you don't have a macro lens yet and you can't afford to go buy one, then I would recommend looking at a 35 millimeter lens or a 50 millimeter lens. Uh, that 50 millimeter lens is also known as a nifty 50. Uh, preferably, you're gonna look for one that has a wide aperture. They get more expensive the wider the aperture, but getting a lens that can go all the way out to 2.8 or even f1.8, it's gonna serve you much better in the long run. The lens I use most often for food is the Nikon 60mm macro lens. It opens up to f2.8 and I find it's absolutely invaluable, uh, but we'll get to that as we get to the gear uh, later on in this episode. So the next piece we we'll want to talk about is a tripod. There are tons of great options in the market, but I would recommend spending money on a good solid tripod. I love the company Manfrotto. They make a good heavy durable product that won't break the bank. I also recommend finding one with a rotating head, one that doesn't just go up and down or left and right, but one that can move in all sorts of directions. And it's also helpful if you can find one that has an arm so you can extend it and shoot overhead photography. Of course, the tripod isn't necessary in the beginning, but it does allow you to shoot at slower shutter speeds, which is preferable to boosting the ISO. Again, remember, we get diminished uh, quality the higher we boost the ISO. So if we, can, uh, if we can lock it down onto a tripod and shoot at slower shutter speeds, uh, it allows us to keep that ISO really, really low. So that is the benefit of having a tripod. In my opinion, that's all you need to get started. And if you're feeling overwhelmed, I'll remind you, don't be. I've put together that guidebook. It's available for download by visiting chipclose.com slash photo guide. So then let's talk about how to set up for the food shoot. So I would find a table right next to a window that gets good light. If you need to move a table over to the window, I say do it. Uh, and let's say you're gonna, you're gonna shoot handheld. So I would set your shutter to 1 one sixtieth of a second or 1 200th and your ISO as low as it can go. If you can get enough light to do 100 then do it but I'm guessing you're probably still going to have to do something like 800 to get a good exposure. 
Now, I mentioned this a minute ago, but for food photography, I typically like to set my aperture somewhere in the middle. Uh, I like to go with f6.3 or f7.1. I find that if I go too wide, like f2.8, the depth of field is way too narrow, and I only get a small piece of the image in focus. And it becomes a little unsettling for the viewer because they don't know quite where to look. So let's say I'm shooting a piece of fish, I want to make sure I can get enough of the image in focus so the viewer sees it and immediately knows that this is fish. So you're going to play around. You can certainly open up wider. The more you shoot, the more you're going to find out what you like. But my advice is to start out at about 6.3 or 7.1. So now we're over by the window and we've got our camera in our hands. We're not afraid of manual mode. We've set the shutter to 1 1 of a second. The aperture is at f6.3, let's say, and I bet you your ISO is probably around 800, maybe even a bit higher. Now you have to see how sensitive your sensor is. My camera still gets really great images at 1000 ISO, sometimes even at 2000 ISO with minimal noise, but each camera is different and you're going to have to play around. If you look at your camera and you're at 1000 ISO and you don't like the distortion, that graininess that's starting to creep into the image, then you're going to have to look at a tripod. As you look at your own setup, you're going to have to decide what kind of shot you want. So if it's just the item, just the food and nothing else, we call that a hero shot. If there are place settings and wine glasses and maybe even some people in the shot, then we usually call that a lifestyle shot. You just have to figure out what you're trying to go for. Are you trying to show off the food, make it look as appetizing as possible? Then you're going for a hero shot. Or are you trying to evoke a mood or set a certain scene for the viewer? Then that's a lifestyle shot. Play around with where you position the light also. Think of it in terms of a clock face. 12 o'clock light would be directly behind the subject. 3 o'clock would be side light hitting that subject from the right side. 9 o'clock light is side light coming from the left. And 6 o'clock light would mean the light is directly in front of the subject. This is like when you would use uh, the flash on your camera. And of course, you can position light all the way around. 1, 2, 3, 6, 7, 11, anywhere on that clock face. As a rule of thumb, the one position I'm going to urge you to avoid is 6 o'clock light. It hits the food straight on and it usually flattens out the subject. I just find it really boring and stale. Uh, think of all those bad family photos you're in where the flash makes everyone shiny and, and it flattens everything out. Side light or backlight creates much more interesting images. Uh, be aware, backlight can sometimes mute the colors of the dish, so you're going to have to compensate. And sometimes side light can create shadows on the opposite side of where you've set the light. And you're going to have to figure out ways to balance that out as well. One solution is to use a bounce card. This is basically a piece of white foam board that's folded into a V shape that gets used to bounce the light back toward the subject. Uh, this is going to help lighten up the dark side of the image. You can also purchase a five-in-one reflector, which is the tool that I use on just about all of my shoots. Uh, it's large, but it folds down to travel very easily, and it has five different reflecting surfaces based on your specific needs. White, black, silver, gold, and then a diffuser that you can use in case you're out in direct sunlight and you need to soften some of the shadows. There are uses for each of them and that I found for 20 or 30 bucks, you get a very versatile tool. So let's say you're at the window and you're still not getting enough light. And like I said a minute ago, you've pumped up the ISO and you're just not happy with the graininess that's starting to creep into the final image. Then like I said, it's time for a tripod. So mount the camera onto the tripod, get it into the right position. And now that it's stable, you can go with a slower shutter speed. Once you lock it down to the tripod, I would put the ISO way down to 100 or even 200 and then figure out the shutter speed that is going to give you the proper exposure. 
as an aside, if you're mounting your camera on a tripod, you may also want to invest in a small remote trigger. It's a wireless remote control that allows you to snap a photo without actually touching the camera. Sometimes I found that even just the act of pressing down the shutter will create enough movement in the camera to cause blurriness in the final image. So the trigger I've found is invaluable. The one that I own was less than $20 and, and it's, it's, been, uh, it's been crucial to my setup. And don't worry, uh, this all of this is going to be in that gear guide later on in the episode. So sit tight. Now. You just want to play around. You've got your table over by the window. You've got your camera. Maybe you've got a tripod. You want to try all different angles and just see what you like. Usually when I shoot food, I try to get a horizontal shot, a vertical shot, and then maybe one other angle. Uh, often that's an overhead shot for food, but sometimes it's an extreme close-up. Whatever it is, especially in the early days, just take as many pictures as you can. Just figure out uh, what works and what doesn't. The more you shoot, the more you're going to learn. Now, this is as good a time as any to talk about uh, food styling. A couple of tips at this point for how to style your food. So I've got five of them here. Number one, never sauce the food in the kitchen. Always keep the sauce on the side and sauce it only once you get it in position and you've checked your settings. Pour it right when you're ready to shoot. Sauces die quickly. Uh, I found they pool in odd, in odd places in the plate or they congeal, so save it till last. Tip number two when it comes to styling food, be careful with garnishes. With food photography, the viewer needs to see the image and know right away exactly what that food is. And I find sometimes that garnishes can muddy the image, so use them sparingly. On the other hand, interestingly enough, when you're shooting cocktails, I almost always ask bartenders for garnishes. And sometimes they'll say, well, this drink doesn't really need a garnish. For food photography, it does. It just helps anchor the eye and it gives the camera something to focus on. Tip number three, in general, you're gonna wanna undercook the food to keep things looking plump and fresh and vibrant. Food, all food, has a tendency to wilt or soften once it's cooked, which makes sense. You're breaking down the protein or the fiber or whatever it is, which is great for chewing and digesting, but not so much for food photography. So, tip number four. When positioning the food, just look for the most interesting angles and don't be afraid to replate the dish if you need to. Now, if you're shooting your own food, that's not such a big deal, but I understand that if you're working with a chef, you'll need to get really good at communicating your needs. It's a constant process that you're just going to keep trying to get better at. No one is perfect, but by staying humble and just letting the chef know that you're trying to capture their food as best as possible, you're going to preserve the relationships. Remember, everyone's after the same thing. Finally, tip number five when it comes to food styling, uh, keep a couple of wet wipes nearby to wipe any smudges on the plates or any uh, sauce that kind of wanders away. Uh, you'll also maybe want a pair of kitchen tweezers or chopsticks in case you have to reposition the food. Uh, the other thing that I always like to say is I always keep a bowl of olive oil near the set with a little kitchen brush. This way I can brush the meat to give it a little glisten right before I shoot it, uh, or I can help drop some oil onto the salad, which just helps the, um, which just helps the dish pop. As you're getting the hang of shooting food, I'm going to urge you to look at as many images as you can, see what other photographers have done, and figure out what works and what doesn't. Most importantly, by looking at a lot of food photography, you're going to discover what you like and why you like it. The more you shoot, the more you see, the better you're going to get. Okay, now we're over by the window, we've got our camera, we've got our tripod, but let's say it's a very rainy day, or let's say the sun is already starting to set and you really still need to capture the food. Well, then you're starting to talk about adding in an external light source. So 
That's as good a time as any to start talking about my gear and the setup that I use when I shoot food. And that's because I always shoot with external lighting. I do that, number one, because I don't have the luxury of being able to wait for good light to shoot for a client. And number two, I'm out shooting usually three or four days a week, and invariably, the weather is not always going to cooperate, or it's going to be an evening shoot, or whatever, or the restaurant doesn't have uh, a window. I can't count on the sun always being there when I need it to be. So I, uh, I use artificial lighting. So then, let me walk you through my setup, and then we're going to get into the gear guide. So as I've mentioned now a couple times, I've put together the guidebook for this episode, which lays out everything we've gone through so far. The basic principles of photography. It shows you my basic setup, how you should position a food shoot. And then it has a full list with links to all of the gear that we're going to talk about. This is the gear that I use and recommend. Again, you can get that guidebook at chipclose.com slash photo guide. You can either download the file and print it out if you want to follow along, or if you're viewing the PDF on a computer, or a smartphone, you should be able to click the links directly. It's going to take you right to Amazon where you can find each and every item I'm talking about. Finally, before we dive into this gear guide, uh, as I've mentioned before, I shoot exclusively on Nikon, so that's what I'm going to talk about here. But in the gear guide, I've done my best to also provide links to the Canon equivalent products, trying to cover all my bases and be as helpful to you guys as possible. Okay? So here goes. Cameras. Now, in the 10 years I've been shooting, I've owned three different SLR cameras. I started out on the Nikon D3100, which is kind of an entry-level amateur camera. Then I upgraded to the D7100, and now I shoot on a D750. So here's what you need to know about Nikon SLR cameras. Their products are split up into two lines. DX cameras, which means it's a crop sensor, or FX cameras, which are full-frame sensors. Professionals will pretty much all be shooting on a full-frame camera, but if you're just starting out, you're going to be fine just using a crop sensor camera. The Nikon puts out a 3000 series, a 5000 series, and a 7000 series for their line of DX cameras, and I always recommend that beginners get the 5000 series. As of right now, the most recent release is the D5600, and in that gear guide, you're going to find an Amazon link where it's available for under $700, camera body and lens. When you're ready to jump up to a full-frame camera, I love to recommend the D750. Again, that's what I've used for a while now. It is definitely a jump up in price, but I found it's worth the investment if you're ready to take your photography to the next level. So currently, the D750, just the camera body, is available for $1,500. Now. If you want to get the top of the line, the best camera that Nikon makes, that's the Nikon D5. It is unreal. It is absolutely gorgeous. It is a professional camera. You need to know what you're doing. Uh, this is going to be my next purchase, but be warned, it is super expensive. It's $6,000, but uh, you can take that camera into war and it'll survive. Now, the tripod I use, as I said before, is made by Manfrotto. It's a solid aluminum base with a three-way head. All in, it's usually about $350, which I know is expensive if you're just starting out. But I promise you, this tripod can take a beating. In fact, it's already outlasted my other two tripods. The wireless trigger I was talking about a few minutes ago is the Nikon ML-L3. It's less than 20 bucks, and it's become invaluable in my setup. 
Uh, as far as lenses, I have a ton of lenses in my kit, but the three that I use most often are my macro lens for food, my nifty 50 for portraits and headshots, and then my 24 to 70 millimeter zoom lens for event photography. So when you're looking at lenses, make sure to go to a reputable store and talk to someone. If you're using a DX camera like the 5600, you're going to need a DX lens. Alternately, if you're shooting on an FX camera, you'll need an FX lens. They are sometimes compatible, but often what happens is that if you put an FX lens on a DX camera, the autofocus feature won't work, which may not be a big issue, but it's still nice to know before you make that purchase. Uh, one piece of advice that I like to give is to buy lenses that will grow with you. So uh, for me, a few years back when I was started upgrading my lenses, I knew that I was making a living now shooting food and that eventually I would uh, upgrade to an FX camera. So what I did is I started buying FX lenses. And some of them, uh, like I said, I had to manually focus. But it meant that I wouldn't have to upgrade my lenses again down the line. So for DX cameras, these are the three lenses you'll want to get. For portraits and headshots, I would get the 35mm f1.8 lens. It retails for about $200. For food, Nikon makes a 40mm f2.8 macro lens for the DX cameras. That's about $280. And for events, you're probably just going to use the kit lens that comes with the camera. It's 18 to 55mm, and it's going to serve you perfectly fine in those situations when you're just starting out. For FX cameras, these are the three lenses that I'm going to recommend you get. For portraits and headshots, uh, they make a 50mm f1.8. That retails for about $220. For food shoots, they make a 60mm f2.8 macro lens. Again, this is the one I shoot on. You can find this anywhere between $500 and $600. And then for events, uh, I shoot on the Nikon 24 to 70 millimeter f2.8 lens. Be warned, this is the most expensive of all the ones that I'm recommending. It's $1,800, but it's gorgeous. Uh, to get a wide aperture on a zoom lens is very, very expensive. You're going to pay for that. But uh, again, if that's what you're shooting, if you're shooting events, um, galas, weddings, things like that, then, um, then it's going to be well worth the investment. Uh, which brings us now to uh, artificial lighting. And like I said, I shoot all of my food with artificial lighting. For years, I simply used a Nikon speed light. So a little flash that it would attach to my camera body that I could use if I was shooting events. Or I could take it off and set it up on the side in a softbox if I was shooting food. It's the Nikon SB700. It retails for about $325, and it has been my go-to for years. In fact, I still use it often. It's easy to transport. It slips right into my camera bag, and I get a ton of mileage out of it. Again, you're going to find the link for that in the show notes. So when it comes to uh, setting up artificial lighting for a food shoot, you're going to need what's called a softbox. So you're going to need a light stand. You're going to need a mount. And then you're going to need a softbox. So it's three different pieces. I use and recommend the Westcott light stand. It's about $40. Again, the link is in the show notes. The mount that I use, it's a Godox S-type bracket mount. Uh, that way the flash can slip right into it. That retails for about $20. And then the softbox itself that I use is Godox 80-centimeter softbox, and it's about $30. So it's not very expensive, all of that. $40 bucks for the light stand. $20 for the bracket mount, and then $30 for the softbox, and you're going to have everything you need. Just this past year, though, um, I actually upgraded to a mono light. It is much heavier, much more expensive, more difficult to travel, but it's also more powerful, which is what I need now for my photography. 
I use the Flashpoint 600 Pro. It's a TTL model monolight that comes as a kit. Uh, I'm going to give you the link to, to get the kit. It comes with a C-stand, which is a very sturdy uh, stand that can go all the way up to, I think, 10 feet. And then it comes with an Octa softbox that opens to, I think, 38, um, 38 inches. All in, that's $800. If you want a serious lighting setup, this is the one I recommend. I also use a larger softbox most of the time, so I've gone out and purchased a, a, an even larger Octa softbox. It's 48 inches. That retails for $90. You're fine with the one that comes in the kit, but if you really want to cover a big area, you know, a big tabletop, then I would recommend upgrading it. So I mentioned the 5-in-1 reflector earlier in the episode. The one I use is made by Lima Studio. Uh, it's not very expensive. I want to say $20 to $30. And then you're going to need a light stand with a boom arm so that you can uh, so that you can position that uh, reflector wherever you need it. Again, the one I have is made by Lima Studio. That's about $40. These you don't need, but it's nice as you're growing your uh, as you're growing your kit. Uh, those links are both in the gear guide as well. If you don't want to do the five in one, you don't have to. Just go to Staples or Michaels and buy some foam board. I would buy one piece of white, one piece of black, and then use a couple of clamps to hold them into place when you're on set shooting food. Uh, I'm linking to the, the studio clamps that I use. It's 10 bucks for a 10 pack. It's all you're ever going to need in life. Um, if you are going to use a flash in a softbox, meaning you're going to mount the, uh, the flash not on your camera, then you're also going to need some way to trigger the flash. The best and simplest one I've come across is the Flashpoint trigger system. There are fancier brands out there and more expensive options, but this is exactly what I use and it has served me well. It's $85 for the transmitter and the receiver. You put one piece on top of your camera, you put the other piece on the bottom of the flash, you just sync them and it works flawlessly. It's $85 and again, if you are shooting with the flash off the camera, it's absolute necessity. So those are the basics. When it comes to shooting food photography, that's all you need. But I promised that I was going to tell you, explain to you exactly how I set up for a food shoot. And when I shoot food, I always shoot tethered, which means that I connect my camera to my computer so I can see the images instantly. It gives me a better look than having to deal with that little viewfinder on the back of the camera. And also when I'm working with clients, I find it's helpful for them to see what kind of images I'm capturing. Because invariably, one of two things always happen. Either number one, they're nervous about the shoot and when they see the shots, they finally get excited or at least uh, it puts them at ease. Or number two, they don't like what I'm doing, but we can identify that right away and then correct the course immediately. So to shoot tethered, you're gonna need a computer. Obviously, any laptop will do, but in the spirit of transparency, I will tell you that I shoot on a 13-inch MacBook Air. Since I live here in the city, I end up taking the subway to most of my shoots. So with my camera, lenses, tripod, lights, stands, and more, having a light laptop is ideal. So that's the one I always recommend for photographers. Uh, the one I have is available for about $1,200. And yes, uh, I've even included the link to that in the gear guide. In order to shoot tethered, you're going to need a tether cable. Now, I'm going to include a link in the gear guide to the cable I use, but you should look very carefully at your camera and make sure to see what port size you have. Mine is a USB to mini B8 pin, but that may not link with your camera. Check the manual to whatever camera you're using and make sure you know what kind of port it goes into. 
Now, I always get a 15-foot cable, and I always recommend ordering the orange. Uh, the company puts it out in black or orange, and the orange is made that way for a reason. It's sometimes dark on set or cramped. There are a lot of people walking by, cooks, servers, porters, dishwashers, whatever. If they trip on a black cord, it may pull your computer right down with it or your camera. Picture your camera set up on a tripod. It'll pull the whole thing down. Trust me get the orange. So the orange 15-foot tether cable retails for $37, and again, it's in the gear guide. I also have a little piece that attaches to the base of my camera called a tether block. You thread the cable through the block before you connect it to the camera, and it just ensures that the cable stays connected. It's ridiculously expensive for what it is. It's like 90 bucks, but if you're going to shoot tethered, I think it's a lifesaver. So that link you're going to find as well. Finally, the last thing I want to talk about is post-production. I always shoot in RAW format, which for Nikon users is NEF file. Uh, I find it gives me the most flexibility to push and pull on the final image, though, of course, you can always just shoot JPEGs. Uh, when I edit, I do that in Adobe Lightroom. I find it's a powerful program that can do a lot. Like anything else, there's a learning curve, but there are a bunch of resources available online. Uh, in fact, my favorite out there is Creative Live, which is going to be today's continuing education. It's a website dedicated to teaching people the skills they need. So most of the courses on there are geared toward creatives. In fact, Andrew Scrivani uh, is a famous food photographer, and he teaches an incredible class on food photography. It's well worth watching. Uh, there are actually several good classes also to help you with Lightroom and even Photoshop if you want to take a deep dive. So take a few minutes and see what's being offered. As I said at the beginning, today was going to be a dense episode. It was. There's a ton of information here. That's why I put together the photo guide. Again, chipclose.com slash photo guide. Go download it. It's going to help you. I think it's going to be a valuable resource to you. Uh, I hope you found some of this uh, insightful. Um, the fact is we're a visual culture now. We spend half the day looking down at our phones. That's where people are. And so you have to put yourself in a position to capture high quality images. So I'm going to finish here with your assignment. As always, uh, it's very simple. I want you to set aside 30 minutes this week to look through social media and the internet to find great food photography that you love. I invite you to check out my profile on Instagram. It's at Chip Close Creative. That's C-H-I-P-K-L-O-S-E, creative. Uh, give me a follow if you want. Send me a message and say hello. You can see some of the work I've shot over the years, but then you can also see the accounts that I follow, and I think you're going to discover some incredible chefs and restaurants and food photographers and, and influencers uh, who will hopefully inspire you. Uh, remember to go download that uh, PDF. It goes through all of the principles, goes through all of the food setup, and has links to everything that I've listed here in the gear guide. It shows you exactly what I use and, and links to everything. As always, I want to thank you for being here. I appreciate you being here. If you've enjoyed the show so far, make sure to give us a rating or a review. Any questions you have, feel free to reach out to me directly at chip at chipclose.com. Thanks again. As always, make sure to subscribe, and I will see you next time. <laughs>